Mm. So if we can create safe spaces within sessions or within our communities where we can express these emotions that feel a bit taboo, just think about how that could revolutionize the way that we, that we cope in our world. Welcome to the Power Hour, the weekly podcast that will motivate you to pursue your passion and to achieve success. I'm Adrienne Herbert, international speaker, fitness coach, Adidas global ambassador and entrepreneur. Each week, I'll be talking to today's leading coaches, creatives, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, morning routines and rules to live by. The Power Hour is all about taking just one hour each day to help you improve your life and unlock your full potential. Whether you want to build a business, write a book, run a marathon, or maybe you're just looking for a spark of inspiration, the Power Hour is going to help you get there faster. Hello and welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Today I am joined by a woman who is passionate about people, movement and mental health. We met many years ago in a ballet class and since then she has toured the UK performing as a professional dancer before studying for a master's at Roehampton University of London to become a dance movement psychotherapist. She is now a registered private practitioner and an NHS specialist. She works within a variety of areas, including addiction, eating disorders, anxiety, depression, as well as working with patients with learning and physical difficulties. This month is Mental Health Awareness Month. So today she has traveled to London to give us an hour of her time. Welcome to the studio, Kimberly Penner. Hello, Hello. thanks for having me. So, so good to have you here. Kind of feels a bit like, yeah, I'm like, she's here in the studio. I know, it's a bit of a whirlwind for me. I feel like, where am I? I'm in London now, yeah. Yeah, no, it's awesome to have you here. So as I mentioned at the start, you have been dancing since the day that you could walk, I Mm -hmm. I imagine, Um, as long as I've known you. And I've seen lots of photos of you, very cute little Kimmy, when you were about five years old with your ballet shoes on. So I'd love if you could tell us how and when you first started dancing and where do you think that passion came from? I think you've got that right. I definitely feel like dance and movement has been in my blood from like day dot. Um, For me, coming into dance has really been about just realizing that there's something about it that just makes me feel really alive. Um, I remember when I was younger watching a, um, a ballet on the television and saying to my mum, mum, I really want to go and do ballet. And my mum was a bit like, oh, it's a bit of a phase. Like we're gonna buy all the shoes, all the outfits, and then you're gonna go to one class and then maybe ditch the idea. But she said, okay, when you start school, we'll think about it. So of course, day one of school, mummy, does this mean I can go to ballet now? And then from then, it's just been an absolute love affair. Um, I think there's something about dance definitely being in my family culture. Um, So my dad's Spanish and my mum's comes from Polish heritage. And I know that my great grandfather, he was a Cossack dancer. And there's obviously a lot of um, expression and movement in the Mediterranean culture. So I do definitely think it's part, it's literally part of my DNA and something that I've always just absolutely adored. Yeah, and then you went to, so how, you went to train, it's not professional training, but vocational when you were 11? Yes, so 11 years of age, yeah. I um, was fortunate enough to gain a place at Elmhurst Ballet School, which is now the feeder school for the Birmingham Royal Ballet. I was there until 16, and then I decided to um, move into more um, musical theatre training. So it wasn't just one type of dance form, because that's the direction that Elmhurst was going in. Um, So I went to Bird College for three years and then toured after that. So, I mean, in some ways, my my journey towards going to Bird, it did feel a little bit um, turbulent at the time, because there was a sense where I had to, either just go directly within dance or go to or kind of branch out and be a bit more versatile with acting and singing and and it naturally happened that way but um 
Yeah, and then obviously through the touring, that's when I discovered that there was more to the aesthetic than dance and wanting to explore more about the communication, more about the expression. Yeah, awesome. So after you'd trained and, yeah, as you said, performed and you toured, so you decided to go back to school and you studied and you completed your master's, as I said at the start. Mm-hmm. So talk us through, yeah, that decision and how you discovered dance therapy. So with from within the kind of last few years of my performing um, career, the job that I was involved in meant that I was always involved in a lot of meet and greet for families who had... Um, book tickets to come and see the show and then for unfortunate reasons they then kind of the show to that either someone had become terminally ill or one of their children was in palliative care now um or or that they had to reschedule tickets and that but they'd been looking forward to coming to the show for so long was there any possibility of doing any meet and greets and my company manager who was amazing always used to come to the the, the leads in the show and I happened to be the female lead at that point to say you know is there any chance that you can either meet them at stage door or can you go to Great Ormond Street or can we do something with the Make-A-Wish Foundation and there was something that was just very automatic for me to want to do that to kind of want to almost take down that wall of the theatre and kind of bring movement and expression in theatre in a way to settings that there was the arts weren't necessarily there so in hospitals and in hospices um and then through doing that I just realized that there was something that really fed me that being with other people in a way that was you know most of these people they were at the end of their or coming to the end of their lives in a place where they weren't expecting it so it was a complete culture shift for the whole family not only the young person and so it was a great honor to be part of those moments where we were just having in some ways relieving the distress for that moment and also kind of offering a chance of escapism and that's when I started researching okay how can I be more involved in this it doesn't feel like something thing that is like an add-on to what I'm doing I almost wanted to invest more time in this and that's when I started researching you know is there I knew about drama therapy but if I'm honest I didn't know that dance movement psychotherapy existed Mm. it wasn't until I started researching into drama therapy that I found that the Roehampton University also did a master's in dance movement psychotherapy and that basically revolutionized my life because it was interesting that although my whole life had been dance orientated and I had been so enmeshed in the dance culture, I myself had never even heard about dance movement psychotherapy. So dance moving in mental health settings, in well-being settings, that it wasn't something that I was aware of. And I think that's so interesting because part of my kind of mission at the moment is to promote and to bring awareness of dance movement psychotherapy as an intervention to support. So it's interesting for me that even as someone who lived and breathed dance, even I didn't understand it and didn't know about it. Um, so it was an intense three-year training. Um, it was a lot of research-based. So obviously we're adding to the research of dance movement psychotherapy to validate it in the profession. Um, but also there was a the other part of the um, training was um, clinical hours. So I was... From moving in theatres, I was all of a sudden in an adult inpatient acute unit. Um, So I was kind of witnessing firsthand people that were at the highest levels of their distress. And again, it was such an honour to be able to bring movement um, to support these people, but also to add a sense of community. Because in the depths of your despair, it's a really isolating experience. And there's something about dance movement non-verbal means of communication that just brings people together mm. and I think that's that's what drives me at the moment that the kind of being the stepping stone or the cornerstone in creating community again mm. amazing and like you said so the show that you were doing as you said lots of families were coming to watch because it was a, it was a kid's show right mm. so it was aimed at children and as mm. you said so then if if families came and their children were ill and you know things like the make a wish foundation I think are you know fantastic Definitely. and as you described you know when you go to the theatre the feeling that you get you know when you sit there you know the whole the energy everything and, and even 
you know, what you said about community and dance, the fact mm. that you think about celebrations and dance and even like a wedding, you know, like everyone dancing in the celebration. I, I completely agree that dance can, yeah, be a way to bring people together, to get people, as you said, nonverbal because mm. so many traditional therapies and, you know, you said you'd never heard of dance therapy. I'd never heard of it. Mm. I think for so many people, you know, this month is Mental Health Awareness Month, which yeah. is brilliant. We've seen so many people more than ever, I think, you know, speaking out and trying to raise awareness, which is great celebrities like Prince William, Tyson Fury, Fern Cotton, all these people speaking out about mental illness in, a, in an attempt to reduce the stigma, which is, yeah, fantastic. But I do often just see the talking therapies available. Mm-hmm. I don't often see, you know, the other kinds of therapies that are out there. So who do you think would benefit from DMT? So I think to kind of delve a little bit deeper into, into your question there, I think it's really interesting, you know, to consider, again, this is my hypothesis, but you're absolutely right. At the moment, talking therapies or therapies that are verbal are the kind of, it's either medication or talking therapy. So whether it's CBT or other types of psychotherapy and the body within therapy is definitely not as acknowledged as perhaps it should be. And my understanding about why this may be is because if we think about kind of the fathers of psychology and psychotherapy, Carl Jung, Freud, you know, we're thinking about that time and that period of time. It was a very patriarchal system. Mm -hmm. It was very male driven. There was very few women in that field. It was very science driven. And so that's again, a very um, patriarchal system where everything is quantitative Mm. um, as opposed to the qualitative nature of what we might experience. And and we also know that at that time, the body was completely oppressed. You know, there was a, almost a bit of um, a taboo around acknowledging the body because there was an idea that it was very primitive. Um, and so therefore we had to avoid anything that kind of connected to our roots because we know historically mm. that actually movement and dance has always been around in cultures where they mourn through dance, they um, celebrate through dance, they process through dance because they're processing through their body. Mm. Their body is the, is the vessel that they experience and respond to life and so it makes sense that we have to go back to the body so I think there's a whole um there's a whole political almost historical agenda as to why not until now dance movement psychotherapy or even the art psychotherapies haven't been as widely acknowledged because there's been almost like a shift in in what we're thinking about and actually what takes priority and I think shifts within our culture has supported that but in terms of who I think dance movement psychotherapy um is for you know, I think in general, it's for anybody. It's for anybody that is um, struggling. It's for anybody who experience a disconnect between mind and body. And, and I think if we think about mental health in general, it's a shame that we still are of the mindset that mental health only impacts the mind. And if we think about the mind, the mind isn't solely... Um, in the brain the mind is in the body like we are a completely embodied vessel so Mm. to think about just treating the brain in the support of mental health reduction of symptoms is is a little bit catastrophic to think about that we need to think about the whole body Mm. um in the work that i do i find that dance movement psychotherapy is particularly helpful for those people who might have experienced trauma directly on their bodies where they have begun to show signs of disassociation from their body um where they have kind of almost start to experience their body as the enemy and i guess dance movement psychotherapy is about re in its kind of simplest form it's about rebuilding your relationship with your body so that you can rebuild a relationship with yourself and then ultimately with others because we have to start with us as a starting point and as we know within mental health a lot of the symptoms that we experience are very somatic based Mm. so it's almost like a bottom-up 
um, perspective. You know, there's all research that's come out recently where um, the second brain has been acknowledged, you know, the brain that we have in our gut, you know. Um, So, and it's interesting that only recently has that gained scientific evidence, whereas we know that that's always been the case because our language has shown about that. So, you know, things that we say, you know, trust your gut, trust your heart. We know that the our second brain sends signals to our brain, to our hearts and not the other way around. So instead of thinking of the brain supporting the body, we're now at the point where we can recognize scientifically that we also need to think about the body hmm. supporting the mind. Yeah. And that's exactly what dance movement psychotherapy is about. Yeah, I completely agree especially with what you just said about the gut because you know I think we've talked about this you know if anyone who's ever felt nervous and mm. said oh I've had butterflies in my stomach or they've said yeah. oh I felt really or they've even gone as far as to being like oh I've got to run to the toilet because I'm so nervous mm. that's exactly what you just said so the mind people think you know there's the physical health there's the mental health they're mm. two separate things but you know exactly if they're if they're not connected then why would your mind when you know that you're nervous about doing a talk for example mm. manifest with a physical symptom of having to go to the bathroom mm-hmm. those two things are completely related you're not yeah. ill you literally are just yeah it's it's a it's it's connected so i'm sure that it's i don't know it must be really it must be a really exciting time to think that as you said now people are actually not only accepting it and willing to to embrace it but the science because i think there's almost mm. two camps isn't there you must face um skepticism within do you know what i mean dmp oh, yes, so definitely. i believe that you know i'm sure you, that you have and i think some people even listening to this right now might be thinking oh you know dance therapy it just sounds a bit like oh how is dancing going to help with my anxiety or my you know whatever but now i think it's really exciting that there is science and you know what does the science say is there there's a lot of research I know and evidence to suggest that exercise and movement in general is good Mm -hmm. for mental health you know people often say good for mental health exercise but why is dance specifically good for the mind and body so I think dance within dance movement psychotherapy I think it's really important for your listeners to think about how they imagine dance to be and almost take the idea and just take it to one side for a moment because obviously we're really social conditioned about what dance is in our cultures you know it's a very kind of aesthetic thought form of art there's a kind of a very strong discipline to it but when we're talking about dance and dance movement psychotherapy it's more about the metaphor so you know like even how we're speaking now the way that I'm speaking you're listening you're responding in some ways that can be seen as a dance so dance is about the creative process of communicating and relating um in terms of the science behind dance movement psychotherapy I feel and I know that the profession would you know support this that dance movement psychotherapy is the the most brilliant marriage of both science and arts and we know as a human culture we need both of those things to thrive you know it's not about prioritizing art over science or science over art it's about those things coming together in forms of understanding so you know I think about if we think about at the moment a person who might be experiencing mental health difficulties what you might hear first of all about lines of treatment the common the common treatment at the moment is CBT cognitive behavioral therapy And although I don't think that there's anything against people engaging in cognitive behavioral therapy, we know that the reason why that therapy is the most um, known is because it's been the most researched and that's because it's been the most funded. So when there's evidence coming out to say that it's the most most clinical effective um, intervention to support anxiety, for example, we have to also um, contemplate, is that because it is in comparison to other therapies or is it because there's just more clinical trials coming out? And so of course, statistically, they've got more data and therefore, it's showing that it's the most effective, but actually in a recent study um, by Gosh et al, 
on dance movement psychotherapy and the effectiveness of it, it actually showed that in terms of um, supporting quality of life and reducing symptoms of depression and anxiety, it was just as, an, as effective. Mm. But unfortunately, we, as a, as a profession or the arts and psychotherapy as a, as a general profession, there isn't as enough um, funding to support all these clinical trials for mm. us to, to sh- prove the data. And also within the science model, the data, like I said, it's very, um, it's very quantitative driven. And actually, again, there's been a recent study that's asking, we need to think about more about the patient's experience as data, as opposed to the, the, the science of it. So actually, that, and that's the quality of the data. You know, how does a person feel at beginning of treatment to end of treatment in terms of how they experience themselves, how they experience themselves in relation to the therapy, how they experience themselves in relation to their functioning. And I think that's, you know, that's a very person-centered, a very humanistic approach to mm. evidencing something. And I think we're at a brilliant time where that's holding more weight Mm. people are beginning to realize that yes on paper but actually what about the person where is the person you know i think within mental health in general we get a little bit caught up in diagnostic criteria um in labeling and actually where's the person in all of that you know what does this person need a person might do brilliantly at cbt but another person might find it overwhelming but if they don't know that there's other sources out there like dance movement psychotherapy it's really tough for them to think i've done cbt and that hasn't quite worked for me so what does that mean for me like am i can i not be um can i not find a better way out of this or at least find some better management of it and that must be such an overwhelming and isolating place to be to think okay I've done the treatment that's the evidence the best clinical evidence base but I don't feel any different and if mm. you're that person I mean it, it I feel really motivated exactly why I'm coming on this podcast to talk to you to support people to understand that it's not there's not just that one treatment there are so many many other treatments out there that are evidence-based mm-hmm. and that are safe practice if you're doing it with a registered therapist mm. yeah for sure it's brilliant and there's also music therapy and there's, yeah. there's I've, I've heard of hydrotherapy and there's lots of things and i think as we said about this whole you know skepticism the reason i bring that up is because i just i think i you know I see that a lot I think in the conversations that I have with people whether it's about breath work whether it's about meditation whether Mm. it's about um running like there's often a lot of skepticism that's like oh okay yes Adrienne that sounds great but actually Mm. if somebody you know is suffering from anxiety or depression how is you know sitting and breathing or dancing gonna gonna solve Mm. the, the problems um and so as well what about people who feel like you know when it comes to dance I think people are very like divisive like either yes i love to dance or oh my gosh no way i hate to dance mm-hmm. and like, even when you think about you know a family wedding and people are like oh i won't get up and dance until there's like i've had a few glasses of wine or the dance floor's full or they just feel inhibited to yeah. actually move with people seeing them and all that kind of thing so what about someone who might want to try dance movement therapy but they think either they're too nervous too embarrassed or they think well i'm just not a good dancer do you know what i mean yeah and that's one of the very first things that i say to new clients when i start working with them or even in their telephone consultation because i always speak to someone over the phone before i see them face face to kind of give them a little bit of reassurance about what to expect from the session um and what's interesting is that I guess again we need to kind of take out the idea of what dance aesthetically is and just think about more about the expression and the communication because actually there is no right or wrong way of moving it's just what do you what do you need and I think you know especially within the way that our society is driven at the moment we are becoming more and more disconnected subjectively to our bodies. I mean, I know that there's obviously a big... 
promotion in terms of health and fitness and although that's there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that and that's very positive for mental health it almost we almost use the body as a bit of a tool as opposed to something that has a subjective experience and that's what dance and dance movement psychotherapy is all about it's not about creating a shape for this shape will make you feel better it's about what does kind of getting to know what your body needs and responding to it um i think that what i should say also is we know that exercise, dance, yoga, all of those different things um, do offer us a sense of release, um, an endorphin rush, for example, and they, it is very cathartic. However, dance and dance movement psychotherapy is less about in the moment cathartic release and more about process. Because if we, we have to remember that dance and dance movement psychotherapy is part of the psychotherapy process. So it's about, it's a, it's a journey. We know scientifically that through our um, neuromuscular devices that when we expand our body preferences we also are able to change our cognitive shift so a really small example of that just to kind of get away from the scientific jargon and simplify it is that if someone's holding themselves in a very bound way or they their posture is very bound or um, and what I mean by bound I mean like a rigid rigid kind of stiff like kind of upright, kind of not even arms folded, just kind of stiff, kind of lacking fluidity in the body. And, and again, that's just a, a, a body shape, for example. We know that sometimes the neuromuscular pathways, that that can also have a connection to the way that our feelings and our emotions become very bound and very restrictive. So we know scientifically that because they share the same pathways, that when we start to expand the body in terms of kind of moving our body in different ways perhaps more fluidly perhaps trying stretching out we know that that has a direct impact on our emotions also that we then begin to think more about different possible perspectives or understanding a little bit about the me and the not me you know this is what I feel but this might be something that the other person doesn't feel so because of that very scientific connection we know that by changing the way that our body experiences the world we also emotionally begin to experience the world differently and I think that is the key point in terms of a dance class and then dance movement psychotherapy because there's no process in a dance class it's just cathartic release you're in the moment you're getting that rush brilliant it's great for your physical health but we're missing the bridge and the bridge is integrating mind and body and that is what dance movement psychotherapy is about amazing and i think the really good examples and i was thinking then about you know if you are driving for example and you're late and there's traffic mm. and then you get to roadworks for example and you might imagine you're you're holding the steering wheel like you said the tension in your neck the tension in your body you're like oh i'm gonna be late you're like stiff and then that stress obviously the stress in your posture you can visit you can see it you can visibly yeah. see the stress that you're thinking oh i'm gonna be late oh i'm stressed yeah. is represented in the body yeah and then perfect you know on the flip side of that if you were like i don't know driving down a beautiful road and it's sunny and you're just I don't know go where you're going you know the music the radio is on you're like relax sitting back you know one hand on the wheel it's that exactly thing that how you feel you can visibly see within the body and also I would say Adrian that it's amazing that you're able to kind of pick that up in yourself like if you're in a car and you're like I'm stressed and you feel it in your body and then you can try to adjust yourself to kind of not allow the stress to become you but I would say majority of people find it really difficult to acknowledge their body in their distress. Mm. And again, I, I feel that there is a connection between the way that our society is driven where, you know, we are becoming more out of touch physically um, in a subjective way. So, and part of the process of dance music like there is bringing people back to their bodies to mm. go, this is your, you know, if we think about it developmentally, we started understanding ourselves and the world around us through 
song because we couldn't speak so we were kind of making noises mm. we used movement because we were kind of touching things you know checking is that okay if that's not okay kind of responding to what our bodies were telling us and kind of seeking outside help from our primary caregivers mm. so we're not inventing anything new but as we developed where as we started prioritizing cognitive kind of processing and verbal language we've kind of stopped being in touch with that very primal mm. but also very needed way of understanding ourselves and it's it's you know it's a bit of a travesty if i'm honest that we've lost that sense of ourselves you know mm. we've lost a part of ourselves in the way that the human race has evolved so again dance movement psychotherapy has not invented anything new we're taking back to what used to be and giving it giving it validation in our current climate mm. i mean dance movement psychotherapy has been around since the 1940s so again i know that it's probably I'm assuming that majority of people listening to this podcast probably it will be the first time they've heard someone speak about it, but it's not a new intervention. It's, it's new, been yeah. around, but it just, for whatever reason, there hasn't been enough platforms to kind of give it the, the recognition that I really feel it needs, especially mm. with giving people options about how to support their mental health. Yeah, and what you just said then, you can see that in kids. So you can mm. see that in children. You know, you said about expressing and learning. Mm. I feel like as they get to a certain age, maybe when they're like three and four, mm -hmm. they just act however they want. Do you know what I mean? If they're excited, they might scream. If they, they might they might run around, they might jump up and down on the spot because they're like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. And then <laughs> equally, if they're like really frustrated, they might throw themselves on the floor and cry and roll around and just express physically. They don't yeah. just sit there and be like, I'm really angry. You know, they, they let yeah. it out. But as you said, as you get older, as mm -hmm. you start to, even as parents, you start to tell them like, what's appropriate? What's not appropriate? What's a good way to, to behave in this environment? And I find myself, I find myself even now thinking as a parent, you know, is that helpful? Is that not mm -hmm. helpful? When can you do that? Because yeah, okay, it might not be socially acceptable to behave in yeah. a certain way. But then it's also like, that's the problem, isn't it? Because like you said, you then learn those things that like, okay, in this environment, I can't run around. Yeah, we learn to filter. To filter yeah. and to kind of, and I guess, I don't know, do you think that in some way, well, we, we need that? Or do you think that actually we should be, do you know what I mean? Because I'm sure on some level we have to have that, right? Otherwise, mm. for example, a perfect example is like in the cinema. Mm you have to be quiet. People are trying to watch the film, but like, yep. obviously children, I'm not gonna, dude, we'll, we'll, we'll be <laughs> like, dude. yeah, Black Panther, like started shouting out and you're like, shh, it's yeah. the cinema. So obviously there's times and places to act and behave in a certain way. Mm. But I definitely think, yeah, the older you get, the more those kind of things get imposed on us, yeah. the more we're squished into this, like, you have to be like this, you have to act like that, you have to say, and then you, like you said, there's no room for expression at all. Yeah. I mean, I think there's so many cultural dynamics at play here. I think that, you know, in other, for example, I think what I'm seeing in the session room itself is anger seems to be this complete taboo that just has to be buried in the body. There's no way of safely expressing it. And actually to give permission pe to people to express anger in a way that feels empowering and releasing is so needed at the moment because where does that anger I mean there's a lot of stuff to be angry about in our world at the moment but mm. that doesn't have a place and actually I think we think about anger and we think about it in a very detrimental kind of aggressive form but anger is another emotion within our human condition and you know if we think about other cultures if they you know like New Zealand for example the hacker like how amazing mm -hmm. is that that as a community they come together and they express the anger but not in a way that is um, aggressive per se in terms of violence but in a way that feels like no this is not right and we need to express this and we need to feel like we have some sort of way of managing this threat to us in almost a non-threatening way mm. um and i think 
I think it's a cultural thing. I think that especially within the UK, you know, we have, you know, those those kind of quotes and slogans of, you know, kind of stiff upper lip and, you know, keep it calm, keep calm and carry on. Well, I kind of think, why? Why are we keeping calm? Because, you know, Susan Kleiman, a dance movement psychotherapist in, in America, she talks about very specifically the way that we've become able to bury emotions in our body. And at some point they then start come out. And in a lot of the work that she's doing, a lot of that comes out through disordered eating. It's almost like a way of um, punishing the body and depriving the body because there's just so much the body becomes this kind of enemy this source of discomfort that we no longer want to be a part of and that's because the discomfort is coming from the emotions that haven't been able to be expressed Mm. so if we can create safe spaces within sessions or within our communities where we can express these emotions that feel a bit taboo just think about how that could revolutionize the way that we that we cope in our world Working for the NHS and working with vulnerable people is a big responsibility and it must be incredibly demanding. I know that you work with people uh, different ages, different, you know, as you said, you know, working with parents, with young people. It's just, you know, creating a space for others, being a therapist, giving to other people. You know, it's a tough thing to do. It must be, yeah, really physically and mentally exhausting sometimes. So how do you take care of yourself and what would your advice be to anybody who is either working in a similar environment or a similar industry or someone who might be caring for a partner or a family member themselves Mm, yeah great question I think Hmm. So as a registered dance movement psychotherapist, in order to maintain my accreditation, I have to go to monthly supervision with a senior dance movement psychotherapist. And basically that's the place that it's not therapy, it's supervision of my clinical work. So it's where I, you know, it's, it is at times um, overwhelming when you're um, working with people in you know the depths of their despair and having to be, um, you know, wanting to support that person. But the, the boundaries of it's somewhat my responsibility but it's not all my responsibility in terms of the shifts and the changes that they that they're making and so the supervision is definitely a space that I feel very blessed to have because it really um, sustains me as a person I think whether you're working in the healthcare profession or whether you are a carer of a loved one who is experiencing difficulties I think a really I find this kind of metaphor really helpful to, re- to remind myself that we are supporting people step into the lifeboat but we are not the lifeboat itself and i think that's a really helpful metaphor when we're feeling overwhelmed to be to be the vessel to support this person come to a different area or to make shifts and make changes all we can do is provide unconditional positive regard which is a which is a theory of person-centered approach in psychology where we just keep being there for that person but we acknowledge that there is there's a boundary between me and the person in that we can support as much as we can, but at the end of the day, it's up to that person to make those changes. And we have to take a step back from feeling if that if that choice isn't a choice that's made or there's difficulties around making that, that it's not our responsibility. All we're responsible for is offering that unconditional positive regard where we're unconditionally supporting that person but not the expense of ourselves yeah I think it must be so challenging and difficult especially as you said for people who are maybe they've become a carer maybe it's someone in their family especially Mm. for parents I think you know because as you said about feeling guilt like as a parent you just want to do everything you're doing your best of course Mm. so if your child or young you know young adult is suffering and you must they must feel so much like well what did I do is it Mm. my fault did I not do this right did I do too much of that and like that blame and like you said i think it's a really nice way to to put that that you can what is it give them an unconditional positive um, regard positive regard and you know help them into the lifeboat but you are not the lifeboat yeah Yeah. and it's interesting isn't it because i you know i'm i 
when you talk about the guilt of someone becomes mentally unwell, that there is, there, it seems like the guilt kind of comes in almost simultaneously when someone is, is going through a difficult time. However, isn't it interesting that when someone is diagnosed with a physical health, there is no guilt. Yeah. But it's the same thing. You know, yeah. we're not, I don't, and then that's again, another cultural shift that we need to happen. You know, why is it when someone has a deterioration in their mental health that there's all of a, all of a sudden a, a, an idea of, have I been the cause of that? Did mm, I do that? What was the trigger? Whose fault? And sometimes, yeah. you know, we don't think about that when someone's diagnosed with a cancer. You know, a parent doesn't go, it was my fault. I fed them the wrong thing. No, like that's just one small denominator mm. in the wider kind of picture. So I think we need to, you know, I think with mental health awareness and kind of anti-stigma, I think part of that is about, you know, it's not, it's not, doesn't need to be a guilt-ridden mental health decline you know it's something about these things happen our mental health declines sometimes so does our physical health but they also both also recover hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th do you want to tell people the big news all right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So let's talk about the power hour a little bit. So you know my power hour, you know me very well. I guess, you know, I've talked this month a lot, obviously, because it is Mental Health Awareness Month about how having a morning routine and a daily practice can be a really useful framework and a really good tool for people to just start their day with some structure and to go, okay, if I can do that, if I can do these first few steps, then maybe that can help impact the rest of the day. So Mm -hmm. I guess there's two things I want to hear from you. One is about that and if you think it can be useful for people and what could they start their day with and then I guess about you because I want to know what your morning's like (laughs) I'm going to completely do a 180 on you because my power hour is at the end of the day okay yeah because I know you love to sleep oh I do I know you love a lion I need to sleep (laughs) you love a lion (laughs) I think that's when I like it's almost the place where I um recharge and the place where I re-nourish myself because there's something about the sleep enabling my body to kind of go into a complete state of relaxation where I'm able to rebuild myself up so I'm definitely I definitely believe in power hours I think that there is so much benefit from kind of dedicated time to something that's supportive to you but so my kind of shift of that is that my power hour happens in the evening and Mm -hmm. it's something to do with the transition from work to home in that time of being able to metaphorically derobe from the day um as a dance music psychotherapist working obviously predominantly with body and non-verbal means of communication as well as verbal i'm really aware of how much i absorb from others and so at the end of the day it's really important for me to establish what am i carrying that is my stuff and what am I carrying within myself that's other people's stuff and until I'm able to think to kind of compartmentalize that out that's when I need to that's I I basically I just need to do that to make sure that I'm taking me home and I'm not taking my eight o'clock client in the morning or the idea of who's coming next and all the group process so there's something about the power hour for me being about acknowledging what's me and what's not me and and I think that whether you're a therapist or not I think at the moment because we are absolutely bombarded with stimuli all over I think that sometimes we can carry feelings within ourselves that perhaps aren't our authentic emotions and I think 
if you can do that in a day, whether it be at the beginning of the day or the end of the day, just checking in with yourself. I'm feeling X, Y, Z. Is that feeling an authentic feeling to me as an individual? Or has that been something that I've absorbed from someone else? Or I'm anxious because there's a lot of anxiety in the in the environment at the moment. And so by doing that, it also helps us feel a bit more grounded and a bit more able to manage when we go, okay, that stuff's there, but it's, I don't own it. Mm-hmm. So and I can only be responsible for stuff I own. Because I think sometimes we get overwhelmed by the emotions we feel because we don't own it. Like how you can we exactly how exactly how can we change the anxiety in the environment when we there's nothing tangible about it but when it's our anxiety and we know okay this triggered me and this is I know what that's about and I know that that's something that I've been struggling with that feels because we're able to have an autonomy over it we're then able to a acknowledge it and then b understand it and then c try and find a way of managing it mm. so i think in terms of power hour there's something about connecting to what is me and what's not me and mm. that's and how do you how do you do that so in terms of like a process or you know when you say about checking with yourself is it mm. do, do you need to go okay i'm gonna sit somewhere that's quiet do you write it down do you talk it out like how what's the process people could you to could do so i mean there's different types if everyone's very different in how they do it for me there's something about moving i think so There's um, there's a a pioneer in dance movement psychotherapy called Mary Whitehouse. She took a concept um, by Carl Jung. Carl Jung's concept was um, active imagination. Um, And that was basically bringing the subconscious to the surface. So the things that we kind of suppress, but bringing them to the forefront to understand them better because our subconscious definitely influences our behaviors. But sometimes we don't know why why we're behaving in certain ways because it's so kind of buried within us. Mary Whitehouse took the concept of active imagination and came up with an idea of um, authentic movement. So basically authentic movement is a practice um, that you can do on your own, but it's you're meant to be doing it with a registered therapist. So it's something to maybe explore, find out if there's any um, therapists that offer this. Um, so authentic movement is where you basically start in a place of stillness and you only move when you feel that your body is... Um, kind of directing you to move or you notice an impulse and through that you just allow your body to lead you and you kind of step out from your mind being the drive in the driving seat so you totally allow your body to take the driving seat and through that we're then able to bring what's in our subconscious kind of into a tangible way and that's when we can think okay I'm moving my arm in this way and when I was doing that I felt like I I had this imagery of of the ocean for example and that made me think of a memory when I was a child and this happened and then we start to make connections like again because because of the science behind it and the pathways between our way that we're moving and the way that we're thinking we then start to to acknowledge that stuff is within me so that's that's one practice but you know some people can get there through um, meditation for me as an individual I find it really difficult to sit um, in stillness I'm sure that you know this about me um and at first I really struggled, you know, what's what's wrong? Why can't I be in the stillness in this medit- meditative state? But for me, what I realized that moving meditations work so much better for me because there's something about feeling able to shift things on a physical level as well as, well as a mental health level. Um, so that's what I would recommend. Mm, I like that. And I, I use that with my running. You know, I always say that, that my running, it is like a meditation. It's yeah. just that forward motion, forward motion, forward, even like the repetition of the, almost like the rhythm of my feet. Boom, boom. Bump. like that for me is like a meditation but mm-hmm. I have been told for a few people they're like you need to sit in that stillness the fact that you resist it so much means you you just yeah you need to kind of one day it will come and you'll yeah. you'll surrender to the still so okay, I have a top awesome. tip for you about that that someone yeah. said this to me and I was like this resonates for me so within stillness I guess 
because it's called stillness, we think about it being still, but actually in stillness, there's a lot of movement. So our, we're still breathing. Like there's still, all of our internal organs are completely still active. So there's something almost reassuring in the stillness that there's still flow. And that's mm. really helped me to kind of connect to that. Actually, I'm not um, outwardly moving, but internally I'm busy. And, um, and I think mm. in that busyness, you can start to kind of acknowledge different somatic sensations, you know, how am I feeling in terms of my organs? Like, is my pulse high? Why is my pulse high? Is my pulse slow? All of those different things that, you know, our body is a communicator of our needs. We just need to get better at listening to it. So also the power hour challenge each week, I ask my guests to give the listeners something that they could try, something they could get involved with this week. They could try something new and they can get in touch and let us know how they get on with it. So do you have a power hour challenge for us? Something to try out this week? Yes, I do. So my power hour challenge is about research. So I would like to encourage as many people to have an explore about whether dance movement psychotherapy is available in your local area because again I want to really communicate that it's not an isolated profession it's not something that's just in the London area or just in America you know we are everywhere and sometimes we're a little bit hidden so you might be working in a in a mental health setting where there is um, a therapist who might be working um, as an advanced mental health practitioner but maybe their training has been in arts psychotherapy or dance movement psychotherapy so go on the website for the association of dance movement psychotherapy uk and have a look to see if there is a dance movement psychotherapy um, registered therapist in your area and if there is kind of put that in your toolbox for if and when you should need it or if a loved one should need it in the future that you have that as a resource because we are out there and we are more than willing and more than um, kind of driven to support you if you're finding things a challenge at the moment awesome thanks kimmy Before I ask you my closing question, can you tell us where people can find you online? What's the website? What's the Insta? Give it to us. (laughs) So um, on my um, Instagram and Twitter, I'm at Kimberly RDMP. And that stands for Registered Dance Movement Psychotherapist. Um, My website is www.movingthroughlife.co.uk. yeah so that's where you can find me awesome and if anyone's listening and they really want to find out more and you want to yeah really just go dive deep into this i recommend you either yeah get in touch with kimberly or get in touch with me and i can put you in touch with her so my closing question which i ask to every guest is all about the concept of time as you know i love it i'm on a mission i want to encourage people to kind of make the most of it so what is the most valuable thing that time has taught you hmm Oh, these questions, Adrian. <laughs> so time, I think there's a time for everything. I know that sounds very cliche, but I think that that's really important to acknowledge when we might be experiencing difficulties that this is a time for now, but it's not going to be forever. Um, and just like the good times that there will be ups and downs in that time, but there's something about embracing our capacity as humans to cope with change, which we have, you know, it's not a new thing. We have been able to com- to to be able to cope with change and times changing. Um, but in terms of what time has taught me, I think that, again, it might sound cliche, but spend your time wisely with people that feed you and nourish you. If there are experiences or relationships that feel detrimental to you, take time away. Take time away from that because maybe there's a difficulty within that relationship because of the other person, but also maybe you need to own some of that. So if you can take time away from that relationship to just check in with yourself, what's going on here? I think that that can be a cathartic and be reassuring to you know knowing what the next steps could be. So spend your time wisely in community and knowing that if you need to take time out, that's okay. 
Amazing. Thank you so much. And thank you everybody for listening. I really hope that you enjoyed the episode. And if you found it valuable or you think that somebody else would uh, get value from hearing that, then please share it with them. Remember, you can rate and review us over on iTunes as well. Have an awesome week. Thanks, Kimmy. See ya. See you. Thank you.